Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Marie Antoinette. Now let's get started with our story about Marie Antoinette. On November 2nd, 1755, Maria Theresa, Holy Roman Empress and ruler of the House of Habsburg, gave birth to her 15th child, a daughter named Maria Antonia. As the Habsburg dynasty formally decreed the eldest offspring of the ruler as heir and successor, Maria Theresa assumed the throne in 1740 upon the death of her father, Charles VI. Despite expectations that she would eventually give way to both her husband and her eldest son and heir, the empress surprised both her own court and government, as well as other European rulers, with her tenacity and determination not to relinquish power. She ruled absolutely, and her 40-year reign greatly influenced both her own domain as well as the course of European political and military events. Although prominent in her own lifetime, 250 years after her death, Maria Theresa does not enjoy the same popular notoriety as her youngest daughter. At the age of 14, in a typically arranged marriage intended to end protracted hostilities with the country of France and deflect the influence of Prussia and England, Maria Antonia was betrothed to the French Dauphin, an eventual Louis XVI. Subsequent to her marriage, the Archduchess changed her identity from her original Austrian name to a title intended to be more appealing to her French subjects, Marie Antoinette. Maria Theresa gave birth to 16 children. Unusually, 13 survived into at least early childhood, including the second youngest, Marie Antonia. As the House of Habsburg was decidedly Roman Catholic, all ten of the Empress's daughters had the first name of Maria, an acknowledgment of the Virgin Mary. Maria Theresa was a workaholic who spent most of her days focused on the affairs of state, but she closely supervised the tutors and nannies who were responsible for her children's upbringing and education. Her strong work ethic and stubborn determination were fortunate personality traits. Only months after her ascension, many of the European monarchs who had formerly agreed with her father to recognize her as his heir renounced this agreement, perhaps sensing weakness. Frederick the Great's 1740 invasion of the Austrian province of Silesia set off an eight-year war that eventually involved all of the great powers of Europe. It was not until 1748 that diplomacy resolved this conflict and firmly established Maria Theresa as de facto Holy Roman Empress and Archduchess of Austria. 
but Prussia and Frederick remained hostile, and within eight years, another war broke out. The Seven Years' War strengthened Austria's profile in Europe, but the immense cost of this conflict convinced the Empress that diplomacy was a much more reasonable way to maintain political power and preserve her domain. In Europe, with most political powers ruled by monarchies, the best method of ensuring a stable alliance with another ruling dynasty was through marriage. Maria Theresa aggressively forged alliances with the French Bourbon dynasty through marriages of her daughters Maria Amelia and Maria Carolina to the rulers of the Italian duchies of Parma and Naples. But her more ambitious union was reserved for her youngest daughter, Maria Antonia, approximately the same age as the heir to the French crown, the grandson of France's King Louis XV, seemed an obvious match, and serious negotiations began between the two courts to make this wedding happen. A special tutor, the Abbé Jacques de Vermont, was brought to Vienna's Hofburg Palace from France to improve the teenager's language skills and overall social polish, underlining the serious nature of the discussion. A French dentist even surgically and painfully straightened her teeth. But this was only the beginning of a process demanded by Louis XV that focused obsessively on the physical appearance of France's potential queen. Louis's womanizing exceeded that of even his royal contemporaries, the famous mistresses Madame du Pompadour and Madame du Barry, among the dozens of women achieving notoriety during his 59-year reign. He supplemented this formalized adultery with trips to royally created local brothels populated by lower-class young women, a scandalous pursuit that served to alienate the general public. Oblivious, Louis XV believed the physical appearance of any major figure of the French court was as much of a symbol of his own prestige as well as that of his heir. Already warned by French emissaries of Louis that only the highest standards of French fashion were an acceptable wardrobe for her daughter, Maria Theresa spent the equivalent of millions of dollars purchasing clothing that was French in origin and design. France's foremost diplomat of the period, the Duc de Choiseul, took responsibility for this process, managed his representatives in Vienna, including the Abbe de Vermont, in ensuring that progress was made during a lengthy royal makeover. Marie Antoinette's hairstyle, so austere that it was causing visible baldness, was transformed into a much more appealing style of that of a French courtier. The result was a fashion sensation copied throughout Vienna. After a year and a half, a prominent French portraitist was finally summoned to paint several likenesses of the Archduchess, her French stylist now confident that her appearance would pass royal muster. In early 1770, Louis XV, enthusiastic about several of Marie's portraits, formally agreed to the marriage. Diplomacy was concluded and an elaborate wedding plan for May of the same year. The bride was 14, the groom 15. Unfortunately, this budding royal fairy tale had some fundamentally quirky aspects. The teenaged heir known then as Louis Auguste was actually the grandson of Louis XV and formerly third in the line of succession. But the death of his father, an adult in his 30s, and the previous death of his brother at the age of nine left the shy and physically awkward 15-year-old as next in line. His chubby physique and reserved personality 
underlined a less-than-imposing countenance and an inferiority complex stemming from the premature death of his brother, father, and mother. Raised by a tutor, he was a withdrawn, obese, and sullen teenager. This unpleasant reality was irrelevant in the face of the political and military necessities of the two monarchies involved. In April of 1770, Maria Theresa packed off her daughter, as well as the Abbe de Vermont, by then subtly cultivated as the Empress's eventual eyes and ears once the marriage took place, and Maria Antonia began a journey that proved emotionally overwhelming. This trip started on April 21, 1770, in the main courtyard of Vienna's Hofburg, the sprawling palace of Austrian emperors, and in this case, the Empress Maria Theresa. The Empress's daughter was placed in a magnificent gilded carriage, saluted by a crowd of patrician well-wishers and Swiss Guard ceremonial rifle volleys, and then sent off while all of the church bells of the city pealed in a congratulatory farewell. Both the seriousness of her new venture and the knowledge that she was leaving the familiar comfort of the Austrian court was not lost on the 14-year-old, who would never see most of her family again. Accompanied only by an Austrian princess who was friends with Marie's mother and the Archduchess's small pet dog, tears were clearly visible as her 57-carriage-long cortege rolled through the streets of Vienna. As she made her way along the two-week journey to the French border, the residents flocking to the roads along her route, the Archduchess was able to pull it together, a smiling face visible through the glass that surrounded her coach compartment. This pleasant acknowledgement from her mother's subjects came to an abrupt end when the entourage reached the vicinity of the French border near the city of Strasbourg. One of the most contentious elements of the entire marital negotiation was the actual site where officially Marie would cease to be part of the Austrian royal family and become attached to France. Based on the very strict protocols of especially the French court, allowing this to take place on Austrian soil would grant a superior status to Austria. Austrian officials felt similarly that having this transfer which actually was officially known as a remise on French soil, would minimize Austrian prestige. The solution? A tiny island known as the Ile d'Epie that was neutral to both countries. On this veritable uninhabited sandbar, a mutually designed, hastily built chateau-shaped structure known as the Pavillon de Remise was constructed with portals of entry on the Austrian side and an exit on the French side. In between was a large hall where the actual process of the remise took place. This shockingly insensitive official procedure was, even by the standards of the day, practically barbaric, especially for a 14-year-old girl. The ritual began with the Archduchess conveyed to the central hall by an Austrian royal prince accompanied by other male diplomats, and then with the systematic removal of every layer of Marie's clothing, the teenager already freezing from a chilly and rainy wind that easily permeated the cracks in the poorly built structure. Her French ladies-in-waiting were intent on removing any connection to the Austrian court, and despite the French origin of this clothing, it still had to go. All of her jewelry, save for the small gold watch that was a gift from her mother that she insisted on keeping, was also removed. Even her dog was taken from her and returned to Austrian officials for transport back to Vienna.
It was not surprising that in a room where a group of women were removing and dividing up her clothing and men were gawking at her completely naked body, the 14-year-old once again lost her composure and burst into tears. Based on actions undertaken even before she left Vienna, Marie had already officially renounced any Austrian nationality or claim to the Austrian throne. This process included her sworn allegiance to her husband's country, France. To do this formally, she also needed to assume a French name. As a child, she was referred to as Antonia. Her French tutor called her Madame Antoine, which ultimately became the more feminine Marie Antoinette. In a ceremony in a Vienna church, she had also married by proxy the French heir to the throne, Louis Auguste, her brother actually standing in as the groom. To their credit, her female French attendants now began the process of redressing her, starting with a massive amount of rouge and powder on her face, and even more ornate hairstyle and layers of clothing, including a cinched corset over a delicate chemise, silk golden stockings. Panier were also attached to her hips, the hoop-like contraptions that artificially billowed her ornate dress in this case a formal, low-cut gown decorated with ribbons, lace, gems, and bows and comprised of silk spun with literal gold. She was now ready for the formal transfer process in the large central hall, but she would be escorted by the chief Austrian diplomat only, and now it was time to say goodbye to the Austrian entourage that accompanied her to the border, many of whom she had known since infancy, and again the archduchess became emotional. Subsequently, she was whisked off to the central hall where more papers were signed, and she was now officially transferred to the French crown. Next, it was to the French side of the structure where dozens of courtiers from her new regime waited to provide by rank a formal introduction. Upon the conclusion of this ritual, Marie was conveyed to her waiting carriage, a servant already assigned to hold her golden train above the mud. Legend has it that just as soon as it was empty, the Pavillon de Remise collapsed from the weight of accumulated rainwater. That evening brought the first of many civic celebrations that marked the pathway to Marie Antoinette's ultimate destination, the traditional summer home of French royalty, the Chateau de Campagne. There she would meet both the King of France and her new husband, the heir to the French throne. Her evening reception in Strasbourg was typical and held at the Archiepiscopal Palace, the residence of Cardinal Louis Constantine de Rohan, the current head of the House of Rohan, one of the most ancient and prestigious noble families in France. As tedious as the day's events were, the attention lavished on Marie at this gala was effusive and marked by generosity and splendor, the town fathers hoping to make her stay memorable. Similar celebrations followed her across the country. On May 14, 1770, at the head of a lengthy procession of carriages, the Archduchess eventually met Louis XV's entourage, which traveled on horseback from Paris. Helped from her carriage, she enthusiastically greeted the French king, who kissed her effusively on both cheeks. Impeccably dressed and styled, the teenager made an immediate impression on the king, a notorious ladies' man. There was less chemistry between her and Louis Auguste, who barely acknowledged her with a meek peck on the cheek. In his diary, he acknowledged the moment with a mere sentence. 
Although the initial impression Marie made on both the French public and Louis XV himself was quite positive, the Austrian Archduchess most likely had no real grasp of the political and social hornet's nest that was about to engulf her. Politically, Louis XV was already unpopular after the expensive and unproductive Seven Years' War, a conflict in which France's ally Austria was unable to repel the continental ambitions of Prussia's Frederick the Great. Additionally, France was forced to relinquish almost all of its colonies in North America, including Canada and much of the present-day American Midwest. This war also necessitated an increase in taxation, an unpopular development especially in light of the remarkable extravagance of the monarchy. Before the alliance struck by Maria Theresa, Austria was traditionally perceived by the French elite as a continental competitor and perpetual enemy. Never comfortable with the alliance and wishing to undermine the stature of the foreign minister responsible for it, the Duc de Chasseau, the anti-Austrian faction of the French government hoped that Marie Antoinette's marriage was a total disaster that could possibly scuttle the alliance itself. The social order of the court, in which various factions vied for prominence and prestige, was typified by petty hostility and backstabbing. Immediately, there was a sense of jealousy about Marie, especially from those who used such women as the king's mistress, the Madame Dubarry, a lower-class former prostitute, to manipulate the lecherous sovereign. This attitude was typified by the three daughters of Louis XV, hideously unattractive middle-aged women who had never married and were typically ignored by the king. It was not beyond the realm of possibility that Louis might even eventually decide to involve himself with Marie, in fact, he initially suggested himself as her husband, his own wife having passed in 1768. Maria Theresa balked at that idea, politely explaining that his grandson's age made him a much more suitable match. The aunts, or Madame Tante, as the three women were known at court, were firmly anti-Austrian, anti-Chasseau, and disingenuous in their dealings with Marie personally solicitous and amiable, but privately scheming against her. Immediately, another aspect of Marie Antoinette's marriage became the subject of court gossip and intrigue. Following the meetup at the hunting lodge, all of the relevant players relocated to the Palace of Versailles. Although Marie's Austrian royal family lived in the sprawling Hofburg complex, and also constructed the impressive Schönbrunn Palace on the outskirts of Vienna, Probably nothing prepared her for the grandiosity of the seat of the French monarchy. Built by Louis XIV as not only a statement of his national superiority and absolute power, the king also wished to contain all of the members of his court under one roof. Hundreds of apartments were provided for those members of French society who were prominent enough to merit such status. But Louis's ostensible generosity concealed an underlying motive— that of keeping the nobility under his literal eye and stripping them of any political power or even ability to unite against his absolute rule. Thousands of individuals lived within the palace, which could hold as many as 10,000 residents, but typically housed between two and 4,000 people. The palace's stone facade, a quarter mile in length, fronted a series of statues, gardens, stables, and central courtyards on a massive scale that stretched for miles and was both breathtaking and intimidating. 
Typically, Marie Antoinette initially was assigned temporary quarters that previously were inhabited by Louis XV's deceased wife, her own apartments under the permanent renovation constantly underway within this massive property. She arrived for the first time on the morning of May 16th and immediately underwent another grueling process to prepare for the day's official wedding festivities. Again, at least partially clothed, she was forced to stand before her female handlers, who engaged in the lengthy dressing ritual, although this time her gown was an appropriate silver festoon with numerous white diamonds provided by her mother as a wedding gift. Once dressed, she proceeded to one of the large palace public rooms where she was formally received by Louis XV, the four siblings of her fiancé, and various other nobility of a high rank. From there, the procession traversed the remarkable Hall of Mirrors, where thousands of formerly dressed members of the elite looked on. Even those hostile to the Dauphine had to admit that in her gown, with her remarkable complexion and embodying the formal mannerisms involved in her gait and bearing, drilled into her during her training by her French stylists in Vienna, Marie Antoinette embodied the appropriate perfection of a prospective French queen. It was then on to the royal chapel for the official wedding ceremony, the groom looking oafish and ill at ease, despite his golden wedding suit costing the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars. A public wedding banquet then ensued, a pleasant interlude before another bizarre ritual that underlined the fundamental role to be played by Marie during her marriage. The coucher was a public process by which the newlyweds were assisted into their nuptial bed. In Marie's case, she was again stripped of her clothing by her female attendants under the gaze of various high-level female members of the nobility. Then her intricately embroidered nightgown was formally handed to her after passing through the hands of numerous ladies-in-waiting, and she was allowed to dress. At least this process occurred in a private antechamber, Subsequently, she entered the actual bridal bedchamber. There, both she and her now husband, according to a court custom dating back hundreds of years, were compelled to literally get under the covers while the king and the most prestigious members of the court observed, an archbishop already having doused the mattress with holy water. The curtains around the four-poster bed were then briefly unfurled, concealing the couple for just a moment, until the cloth screens were then lifted so that observers could ascertain that the couple were properly situated to consummate the marriage. This process clearly intended to impress upon Marie what her singular and most important obligation was entailed by this union, to provide an heir for the dynasty and to do so as quickly as possible. At least the couple was able to retain some dignity as the symbolic ritual concluded and the main participants were finally left alone presumably to engage in amorous activity in privacy. But, and this was the development that sent gossipy tongues wagging throughout the palace, a subsequent examination of the bedsheets the following morning by servants observed them to be unstained by any blood, indicating that no consummation had actually occurred. Subsequently, it would emerge that Louis-Auguste had immediately fallen asleep without so much as touching his wife's hand. Although the wedding festivities continued for another nine days, Marie's virginity remained intact. 
the lack of consummation, a dilemma that dragged on for years. Despite the setback, Marie, based on advice from her mother, wisely ingratiated herself with Louis XV in a way that was charming but unserious. She also continued to attempt to ingratiate herself with her now husband by remaining solicitous and pleasant, and even gently and privately hinting that they should live together and behave like a married couple. But these efforts went nowhere, the Dauphin frequently not even sleeping in the same room as Marie Antoinette. This did not make for a very cheerful environment, the Dauphine's loneliness exacerbated by any lack of privacy. Her daily routine, the object of her official entourage, literally hundreds of court-appointed, officially titled nobility, ladies-in-waiting, officers, valets, priests, and servants. The upper echelon of this retinue literally did nothing but accompany Marie wherever she went, their minimal efforts rewarded with considerable salaries and pensions, and their positions greatly prized by members of the court. All court activity was governed by a strict and extremely formal system, the word etiquette practically originating from the code of conduct instituted by Louis XIV. The undue attention which even accompanied such mundane daily tasks as bathing and dressing further increased Marie's longing for the less formal environment in Vienna. At least she was allowed to alleviate this loneliness by having her pet dog return from exile in Austria. Mortality suddenly intervened in the spring of 1774 to permanently change the relatively vapid routine of the heir and his wife. On April 27th, Louis XV went hunting with his entourage, but suddenly felt too sick to even leave his carriage. By May 3rd, even he acknowledged that the red lesions on his body were indicative of smallpox. The king lasted another week, many accounts stating that in his final hours, he uttered the phrase, Après moi, le déluge. After me, the deluge, a supposed acknowledgement that the financial excesses and utter governmental mismanagement of France could only result in catastrophe. Like many storied quotations, this one most likely never occurred, but it should have, and it was a fitting admonition for especially the now Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Even before he was officially coronated, Louis XVI banished the Madame du Barry to a convent. This was as much a message to her as it was to the courtiers who exploited the king's mistress's influence over Louis XV in matters of policy. Madame Dubarry used this influence over the king to help remove the foreign minister, the Duc de Chasseau, and to replace him with the Duc de Aguillon. The former king's mistress had little interest in politics, but was manipulated by other courtiers who knew that she had the king's ear. Louis XVI also attempted to remove any legacy of the former mistress, the Madame du Pompadour, by officially presenting his wife the Petit Trianon, a small chateau on the grounds of Versailles, formerly built and occupied by de Pompadour. Initially, the ascension of the new king and his beautiful wife was greeted by the public with happiness, and the young couple was popular. The staggering deficits and disastrous foreign policy of Louis XV rendering him unpopular. It was hoped that a new reign would also bring new attitudes and a new direction. Outmaneuvered by more experienced governmental ministers, Marie Antoinette initially had little influence over her husband's administrative decisions. Instead, she focused on renovating the Petit Trianon, 
a lavish wardrobe, and plans for her husband's official coronation, scheduled to take place in June of 1775. During this time period, one of Louis XVI's new appointees, the Minister of Finance, Robert Jacques Turgot, ambitiously removed any price controls on the grain trade, a fundamental of a laissez-faire approach to the economy. Turgot believing that this would benefit all parties involved in these transactions. A coincidental poor 1774 autumn harvest of grain, as well as a disorganized implementation of the new policy, resulted in skyrocketing prices of bread, the main staple of French peasants. Shortages then led to famine, previous strict regulation of the grain market having always ensured access to a consistent food supply. Regional riots eventually broke out, mobs spontaneously looting bakeries and attacking farmers. This disorder eventually made its way to Paris. Military intervention eased the rebellion, but the popular revolt was a symptom of the fundamental decay of the French monarchy and the wealth gap between the nobility and the peasantry. It was during this time period leading up to the coronation whose lavish spending was already being questioned by even members of the government, including Turgot, that Marie Antoinette, having been told that the people had no bread, is alleged to have uttered the phrase, qu'il mange de la brioche, let them eat cake. This apocryphal anecdote actually stemmed from a story related by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his 1766 voluminous Confessions, attributing the quote to an unnamed princess. In 1766, Marie Antoinette was still a nine-year-old archduchess living in Vienna. As a concession to economic reality, Louis XVI agreed to only involve himself in the formal coronation ceremonies, including his wife would have greatly added to the event's expense. However, this allowed Marie to create her own wardrobe, unconstrained by the traditional garments worn for such an occasion. The French coronation of kings, always held in the cathedral of the city of Reims, followed a 1,300-year tradition and included artifacts used by Clovis and Charlemagne. But, typically, when the massive gold and jeweled crown was placed on Louis XVI's head, he whined that it was too heavy and painful, the 19-year-old definitely not rising to the occasion. For her part, Marie Antoinette, in seating especially constructed for her and her entourage, was dressed in a fabulous sapphire-encrusted gown designed by one of Paris's most cutting-edge designers, French fashion, even then the European standard. Her hairstyle and that of her retinue was a dramatically teased powdered tower topped with feathers known as a panache a modern fashion statement much different than the ancient costumes worn by the king and his attendant nobility. Marginalized politically, with her husband's chief advisors hostile to Austria, Marie Antoinette immersed herself in a pastime meant to underline her status as the court's most important female. She began the practice of weekly masked costume balls centered around various themes— her costumes sparing no expense and distinguishing her from her guests with spectacular clothing. Her husband, perhaps guilty at his ongoing sexual disinterest, allowed her to spend fantastic amounts on her wardrobe and the parties themselves, which frequently lasted until dawn. 
These exercises were undertaken to at least publicly maintain the facade that Marie Antoinette enjoyed great influence with the king, and she hoped over time to regain the same political prestige as that of Louis XV's mistresses. But neither Marie or her husband would be respected as dutiful monarchs if the continued sexual reticence of the king prevented any progress in the process of producing an heir. When Louis XVI's younger brother married and produced a son in 1775, this only increased the pressure on the sovereigns to behave accordingly. This issue became so serious, especially for the Austrian court, because they would lose any connection to the French throne if Marie Antoinette did not give birth, that it was decided that Maria Theresa's son, Joseph II, Holy Roman Emperor, an heir to the Austrian throne, would visit his sister to attempt to get to the bottom as to what exactly was holding up the process. Although happy to see any relative, the queen was also apprehensive, as her elder brother frequently could be insensitive and critical, and had already admonished her in numerous letters over the current situation. In April of 1777, traveling incognito as Count Falkenstein to avoid any embarrassing attention over his mission, the emperor also resorted to a plain wardrobe and an absence of medals and decorations. To avoid the time-wasting rituals of Versailles, he stayed in a nearby hotel, maximizing his interaction with both his sister and Louis XVI. He spent a great deal of time with his sister, but also had some frank discussions with the king as to what exactly was required in this situation. Whatever difficulty or apathy that formerly plagued Louis XVI subsided, and shortly after her brother's visit, Marie Antoinette was able to report to her mother that more than seven years after his wedding day, the king successfully consummated his marriage. By April of 1778, it was believed that the queen was pregnant. Unfortunately, this moment, which should have been euphoric, was tarnished by foreign relations that personally involved Marie. The December 1777 death of the childless ruler of Bavaria prompted Joseph II's attempt to subsequently claim this land as part of the Habsburg Empire. Prussia under Frederick the Great was hostile to Austrian expansion into what he felt was clearly German territory, more appropriately autonomous and certainly not part of Austria. Joseph II had always focused on the potential annex of Bavaria. Having married a Bavarian princess, a union which he now used to justify his ambition, despite the fact that his wife Maria Josepha had been dead for 10 years. In early 1778, he ordered the occupation of part of Bavaria by 15,000 soldiers. Frederick responded by invading Austrian Bohemia, present-day Chechia, with his own substantial army. Typically, these armies then halted while various diplomats conferred, attempting to negotiate a peaceful settlement. Technically, France was allied with Austria and was officially required to militarily side with the Habsburgs. Catherine the Great of Russia also indicated a hostility toward Austria and threatened to intervene aggressively against any Austrian expansion. Although this one-year conflict, known as the War of the Bavarian Succession, did result in some military interaction between Austria and Prussia, all of the European powers were not interested in a full-fledged continental conflict, especially Maria Theresa, who counseled her son 
that Austria could not afford such a costly dispute over a relatively minor issue. Several anti-Austrian French ministers also were able to persuade Louis XVI not to even threaten to militarily aid Austria in any potential conflict, and he obliged, adopting the line that France was not obligated to help in a conflict generated by the annexation of any new territories. This despite Marie Antoinette's specific attempt to influence her husband to substantially support Austrian claims. The king's rejection of such an entreaty underlined Marie's lack of clout in political matters and also fundamentally questioned the strength of any French-Austrian alliance, this weakness for Marie Antoinette, an embarrassing personal failure. This modest war was concluded with a treaty in May of 1779, reinforcing most of Bavarian sovereignty and delivering a tiny sliver of Bavaria to Austria. Although thousands of Austrian and Prussian troops did die during the conflict, most of these casualties resulted from starvation and disease. By then, Marie Antoinette's pregnancy had resulted in another personal setback and bittersweet moment. On December 19, 1778, without any complications, she gave birth to her first child, unfortunately, a girl. Publicly, both king and queen were exultant over their daughter, but privately, Marie Antoinette was crushed by this development. Her popularity with the French people was already waning due to her already notoriously spendthrift behavior. Gossip concerning her possibly adulterous conduct as the real cause of a childless marriage and even romantic entanglements with other female courtiers. She reasoned that a male child might restore her image with the public and before her delivery in an attempt to diffuse rumors spread by gossipy pamphleteers, even went so far as to distribute cash to some of the poor of Versailles, who were in prison over debt. Eventually, as a young mother, Marie would quickly grow quite attached to her first child, but the anxiety over the lack of an heir, especially in light of Louis XVI's brother, the Comte d'Artois, now the proud father of two sons, remained. In late 1780, another event occurred that greatly influenced Marie Antoinette and her role within the French monarchy. Maria Theresa, in her early 60s, despite an iron will, began to be plagued by ailments that suddenly became quite serious. Today, it is believed that her worsening condition was the eventual result of smallpox contracted in 1767, resulting in her death on November 29th. Marie Antoinette enjoyed both a close personal and political relationship with her mother, back channels available for constant communication, and from the Austrian empress, advice. No such relationship existed with Marie's brother, Joseph II, who, upon the death of his mother, was now both head of the Habsburg Empire and Holy Roman Emperor. Maria Theresa was always the driving force between the French and Austrian alliance and perceived as a much more formidable entity. Her death further weakened Marie's position within the French court, practically isolating her from any political influence. It could not have been more timely that in early 1781, rumors of another royal pregnancy began circulating throughout Versailles. The French government was involved in financing an ongoing and costly effort aiding American rebels against the British crown. The French finance minister, Necker, published the royal accounting publicly for the first time. Although this document unrealistically presented the government's finances in a positive light, 
leaving out much of the expenditure aiding American colonies. It also caused great dismay within the French court, such candor unthinkable. Necker, a commoner, was dismissed, but his sacking caused an uproar. The people, believing him to be an honest bureaucrat, fired over his dedication to the public interest. It was in this political environment that in late October of 1781, the Queen went into labor. In the afternoon of October 22nd, she gave birth to her second child, the sex unknown to her until King Louis XVI entered her bedchamber and proclaimed, Madame, you have fulfilled your wishes and those of France. You are the mother of a Dauphin. Pandemonium resulted within Versailles, and much of the country was overjoyed at this latest development. Marie Antoinette again perceived as an elegant and beautiful queen who had successfully provided the country with an heir and future king. Baptized Louis Joseph after his father and his Austrian uncle, even the child's name underlined the two national entities united by his birth. Only three days before this event, Lord Cornwallis surrendered to French and American forces at Yorktown, Virginia. Purely from a Machiavellian perspective, this defeat was a tremendous blow to English prestige, a great victory for France, and meant negotiations that would benefit the country, both in Europe and in North America. Less understood was the process by which a motivated population, despite a lack of resources and military ability, successfully toppled a ruling entity considered tyrannical and exploitative. Returning to France, veterans of this conflict explained how rebellious Americans rejected the monarchy and installed a completely different system of government. Unfortunately, the ramifications of how such an endeavor might eventually reverberate throughout French society was never seriously considered or even examined. Marie Antoinette herself, despite continued demands from her brother to assert herself politically in specific situations that would benefit Austria, was more focused on the health of her young family and the masked balls and lavish parties that were a mainstay of court life. Louis XVI ignored any of her political input. His hostility toward Austrian interests deliberately instilled by most of his ministers, which conformed to a lifelong predilection of the Bourbon dynasty. The king did continue to turn a blind eye to his wife's profligate spending, continually hoping that this would assuage any unhappiness over her political irrelevance. Marie's spending did not diminish. It actually became more elaborate, with the queen redecorating the Petit Trianon and even constructing a faux village that contained 12 cottages, windmills, miniature castle turrets, ornate temples, even a dairy with a marble floor and silver mugs. Some token animals were maintained to give the appearance of a rustic, unassuming farm. In fact, any provisions necessary were transported from an actual farm in the vicinity. The cottages were surrounded by hundreds of porcelain pots stamped with Marie's monogram and filled with flowers, the intent to construct a relaxing country retreat for the queen and her entourage. And it was about this time that gossip began to circulate that Marie Antoinette was involved romantically with several different individuals, most notably the Swedish aristocrat Count Axel Fierson, who served with the French military during the American Revolution and returned to Versailles in 1783. Rumors of such dalliances even heightened to the level of questions about the actual paternity of the royal children. But Louis XVI was either unaware or didn't care, still spending little time with his wife. 
most of his leisure time was spent hunting and engaging in massive bouts of drinking and gluttony, the king even ignoring the tradition of taking a mistress, exhibiting a total lack of interest in such a pursuit, despite the many women introduced by schemers determined to undermine the queen. Despite this domestic dysfunction, Marie Antoinette again became pregnant in the fall of 1784, giving birth on March 27, 1785, to another son, Louis Charles. As his older brother, Louis Joseph was considered frail and sickly. The second son was welcomed as an insurance policy should the current Dauphin succumb to any medical misfortune. One of the more common forms of political commentary in France during this time period were cheap pamphlets sold in urban areas that were mostly gossip and cartoons concerning prominent figures, as opposed to any serious political analysis. Although these pamphlets satirized numerous individuals, Marie Antoinette was the single most popular target of all sorts of scurrilous claims involving her children's paternity. Her voracious promiscuity with both male and female members of the court, gambling and reckless depletion of an already weakened treasury, this hostility generating an identity of la autrichienne, a wordplay on French for Austrian and female dog, Marie dubbed essentially the Austrian bitch. But no incident crystallized public hostility more than a bizarre and Byzantine swindle involving a diamond necklace that began in 1784 and played out publicly for a year, permanently tarnishing Marie Antoinette, the public adopting an irrevocably and overwhelmingly hostile attitude towards the queen, setting the stage for subsequent disaster. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Marie Antoinette. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Marie Antoinette, The Journey by Antonia Frazier and Queen of Fashion by Carolyn Weber. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Music